Well, in our scripture text this morning, we're going to meet a young man who, by all measures, seems to have his life in order. He's young, he's rich. We don't know this, but I tend to picture him as a handsome young man. He just seems to have it all together. And, and yet, as we read the text, we see that he doesn't. Something is missing. And so he comes to Jesus and he asks, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And it's curious that he asks that, because any devout Jew would know the answer to that question. The the rabbis were always posing this question in their writings and teachings. And the answer was always the same. Obey the statutes of God and avoid all sin. And the young man would have known this answer. So why was he asking Jesus? Because something is missing in his life. Something is missing. He senses it. He knows it. And in his struggle, he asks the most important question I think that any of us could really ask, and that is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, But we're going to begin here in Mark 10. This is going to be our primary text, verses 17 through 27. It says, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. This young man is caught in a trap, but he doesn't know it. And the trap for him is related to wealth. Now, some in our day have said that having a lot of wealth is evil, but Jesus did not say that. He said that the love of money was the problem, not the money itself. Others have said and thought, and you see this uh, in Scripture in some places, that if you have wealth, that means that God is blessing you, that God rewards people for living a good life, and He curses people for a bad life. But we know that Scripture also says that God reigns on the good and the evil, He blesses all kinds of people, regardless of their good and bad deeds. So Jesus rejects a simplistic understanding of wealth, and he presses the young man to go deeper. 
he, he wants the man to realize that he's caught in a trap. And so he asks him questions to press him. For example, do not defraud. In other words, have you misrepresented the facts in your business dealings? Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Jesus is asking here, have you stolen? Have you ever exploited? Have you taken from people things that are by rights theirs? The young man says, all these I have kept since I was a boy. That is, no. With all of my wealth, I've always acted in justice and kindness and fairness. I've never sinned in any of these ways. And Jesus accepts this. So, just because someone has a lot of money, it doesn't mean that they've gotten it by doing wrong things. They may have gotten it by discipline or vision or delayed gratification or patience or all of those things. And Jesus doesn't say that having the money is wrong or or unjust in itself. But he says it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to get into the kingdom of God. And here Jesus is giving a metaphor. And and every culture has some very clear metaphors, like strong as an ox or a blanket of snow. Or sometimes you'll hear people say, a snowball's chance, uh, meaning it's impossible for a snowball to survive in a hot place, right? And it's also impossible to get a camel through the eye of a needle. Jesus is saying it's impossible for the rich to get into the kingdom of God. He didn't mean that it's a sin to be rich. And so it's not that all individual rich people are bad, nor are all individual poor people good. He's not making that kind of blanket statement. Nor is he saying, just be careful, don't fall into greed, be generous from time to time. No. Jesus is speaking to the young man, and he wants him to know that there is something radically wrong with all of us. But money has a particular power to blind us to that. Um, That's why it's impossible for the rich man or a rich man to get into the kingdom of God, because his riches have totally blinded him to his own spiritual condition. And we see that in the rich man's question here. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Does he really think that he can do anything to inherit eternal life? And so what about you and I? Do we really think that there is something we can do to inherit eternal life? If so then we are blind to the true state of our spiritual condition. We may not have the riches of the rich young ruler, but if you and I think that we have any goodness in ourselves, if we think that there are good people and then there are bad people, there are some who deserve heaven and then there are some who do not, then we're just as blind as this man here. So, What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question of our text. And first of all, to understand that there is nothing you can do. Understand that there's nothing you can do. That it's impossible for you to do anything. And so it's it's like the Jews trying to keep the law in in order to earn salvation. It doesn't happen. It It won't happen. It's a trap. 
Our riches or our belief in our own goodness can keep us from seeing what we really need. And so this man comes to Jesus and he says, you know what, I've done everything right. I've been successful uh, economically. I've been successful socially, successful morally, and successful religiously. I've heard you're a good rabbi, and I'm wondering if there's something I've missed something that I'm overlooking, because I can sense that something is lacking. And it's no wonder, because anyone who counts on what they're doing to get eternal life will find that in spite of all that they've accomplished, there's an emptiness. And how can anyone ever know whether they're good enough? And this man is well accomplished. I mean, he has quite a resume But we have to give him credit. He realizes something is missing. And I hope this morning that we realize that something is missing if we're trying to pursue eternal life by what we do. He realizes something is missing. So he comes to Jesus and he admits it. What what am I missing? What do I have to do? I'm willing to make changes. Just tell me what to do. And so Jesus tells him, And his words knock the man out. Jesus begins by telegraphing the punch. Look at verse 17 again. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. There's a hint. There's a preview Jesus is throwing out. He He's not saying that he's not good. He doesn't say, why are you calling me good? I, Jesus, am not. He's not saying that. He's saying, why are you walking up to somebody you think is just a normal human rabbi and calling him good? There's a flaw in your whole idea of goodness and badness. That's the hint. Then the blow comes. Jesus has already accepted what the man said about having obeyed the commandments, living a good life. But here's the punch, verse 21. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. In other words, Jesus says, if you want to follow me and have eternal life, of course you won't commit adultery. You shouldn't scam people. You shouldn't murder them. You shouldn't do bad things. But if you just repent of doing bad things, all it will make you is a moral person. But if you want eternal life, if you want intimacy with God, if you want to get over this nagging sense that there's still something missing, then you have to change how you handle the good things in your life. Because God blesses us with good things. And I hope you see that. I hope you appreciate that. He blesses us with good things. We achieve things or... Or we have a tendency to highlight the good things that we have to make us look good or to feel good about ourselves. We may even, in our prayers, point to our good things or our achievements and say to God, in a sense, look at what I've accomplished. You should answer my prayers for me now. We may not say those words exactly, but that's kind of how we think at times. We may try to use our good things to try to get control of God. See, God, I've been good. Now you be good to me. We we, we may try to use God to get control 
But Jesus is saying to the man in our text, you've, you've put your faith and your trust in your wealth and your accomplishments, but that effort is actually alienating you from God. You see, right now, God is not your Savior. You, you've replaced Him with other things. So He says to this young man, I want you to imagine life without money. I want you to imagine all of it gone. No inheritance, no inventory, no servants, no mansions. All that is gone. All you have is me. Can you live like that? That's what he's asking. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, first of all, we have to understand there's nothing we can do to earn eternal life. And secondly, to recognize what is your Savior. Recognize what is your Savior. Or recognize what is threatening to be your Savior instead of the Savior. It's one thing to have God as a boss or an example, but if you want God to be your Savior, you have to recognize what other things are trying to take His place or have taken His place as your Savior. And all of us have something. So I'm wondering, what is it for you that threatens to push God off the throne of your heart? If you want to be a Christian, of course, you'll repent of your sins. But after you've repented of your sins, you'll have to repent of how you've used the good things in your life to fill the place that God should be. If you want intimacy with God, if you want to get over this sense that something is missing, it will have to be it will have to become God that you love with all of your heart and your strength. Well, this is this is a tough punch. And the man does not respond well to it. He goes away sad. And the word sad is better translated here, grieved. He grieves. And he grieves because money for him is the center of his identity. To lose his money would have been to lose himself. To lose what little sense he had of having obtained goodness or salvation. And so he walks away. And so this morning... I want to beg you, don't be like him. Don't be like him. Give up any sense that you might have that you are good in yourself. Because it's our own sense of moral goodness that keeps us from understanding the cross. Recognize the things that have taken the place of Jesus in your life or threatened to take the place of Jesus as your Savior. Jesus' encounter with This rich young ruler is similar to another encounter he has in Mark 12, verse 28. A teacher of the law poses a question to Jesus as well. He says, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And remember that teachers of the law spent their whole lives studying and classifying and categorizing the law. And some had found as many as 613 rules in the Old Testament law. And they were always trying to distinguish Uh, the lighter ones from the heavier ones. And so the question was, if all the hundreds of rules and commands, which one is the most important? And Jesus responds in verses 29 through 31, the most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
There's no commandment greater than these. So Jesus doesn't replace the law or do away with it. Instead, he boils down all of the law of God into one principle, love, directed to God and to others. And the teacher of the law loved the law as much as the rich young man, I believe, loved his riches. And so Jesus, once again, cuts right to the man's heart. And that's what he'll do with you and I if we allow him to. If we say, Lord, search me, try me, I invite your spirit. He'll go right to the heart because he wants your heart. That's the whole point. Does this man walk away sad like the rich young ruler? Verses 32 and 33, he says, Well said, teacher, you are right in saying that God is one. There's no other but him. To love him with all your heart, and with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And so the teacher admits that these two commands are the most important. And his reference here to the burnt offerings and the sacrifices shows that he realizes that these cannot make up for sins or all his sins. And so we see him coming to recognize what an impossible standard the law gives us, that it is indeed easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a good man to satisfy the law. The closer he gets to seeing that, the closer he is to figuring out the gospel, Jesus says. And so for you and I, if we concentrate on rules and regulations, we we can begin to feel pretty good about ourselves, or we can begin to feel righteous. But then when we look at the hard attitude that the law really is requiring and getting at, we begin to realize how much we need grace and mercy. Verse 34, When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And so, on the surface, this is almost the same reply that he gave to the rich young man. One thing you lack. But the rich young man did not respond. Similar questions, similar answers, completely different responses from these two men. So, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Understand that there's nothing you can do. Recognize who your Savior is. And thirdly, abandon other saviors for the one true Savior. There are many things in our lives that can attempt to replace Jesus. But since we looked at the rich young ruler this morning, let's focus on money for our application. Since wealth can blind you to your real spiritual condition, how do you know if that money isn't just money to you? Well, here are some of the signs. You can't give large amounts of it away. That's a sign. You get scared if you might have less than you're accustomed to having. You see people who are doing better than you, even though you might have worked harder or you might be a better person in your eyes, and it gets under your skin. And when that happens, you will know that you have one foot in the trap. Because then, money is no longer just a tool. It has become the scorecard. It has become your identity. And so no matter how much money you have, though it's not evil in itself, Scripture tells us it has incredible power to keep you from God or to blind you to your spiritual condition. 
But did you notice what Mark writes as Jesus talked with the rich young ruler? It says, he looked at him and he loved him. He looked at him and he loved him. Why was Jesus' heart suddenly filled with love here? Well, Jesus was a loving person, of course, but this statement of love toward a specific person is very unusual in the Gospels. Did Jesus love him for his leadership potential? Was it because of what the man had said? I don't think so. Because Jesus, who is about 31 at the time of this text, about the same age as the man he's looking at, He looks at him, and he identifies with him. I believe he identifies with the rich young ruler. Because if you think about it, Jesus, too, is a rich young man. In fact, he's far richer than this man could ever imagine. Remember that Jesus had lived in this unbelievable glory and wealth and love and joy of the Trinity for all eternity. Remember that? the perfection, the riches of the Trinity. But Jesus had already left that wealth behind. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says it this way. He says that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And Jesus says, I'm going into a poverty deeper than anyone has ever known. And I am giving it all away. Why? For you. For you. And now Jesus says, you can give everything to follow me. Jesus says, if I gave away my big all to get you, can you give your little all to follow me? Because I won't ask you to do anything that I haven't already done. Jesus says, I am the ultimate rich young ruler who has given away the ultimate wealth to get you. Now, can you just give me what you have? I've given it to you anyway. So, if you understand in your life that Jesus is the true rich young ruler, it's going to change our attitude about money. For example... Uh, We won't be trying to figure out how much we have to give away. You know, Pastor, what? How how much should I give? You know, what what is it? What is the tithe? Is the tithe Old Testament? Do we really have to do the tithe? Is that you know? Is that gross income? Is it? All those questions are just going to go out the window as you stand before the cross, as you see the true rich young ruler. You're not going to be thinking about how much you have to give away. You'll be trying to figure out how much you can give away. Because the real standard for how generous we are is the cross. And so Jesus is saying, I want your attitude toward money to be utterly changed and reworked by what I'm going to do on the cross. That's what he's saying to the rich young man here. And so for you and I this morning, does it move us to think about what Jesus has done for us? And I ask that because when it does, when it begins to move us, when it when it amazes us, when it makes us cry, then we have a fighting chance of avoiding this trap of money. 
When we let Jesus' sacrifice melt our hearts, it will diminish the importance of money to us. At that point, we can give money away, we can keep it, depending on what's the best thing at the time. But that's the only way I know to counteract the power of money in our lives is to see Jesus as the ultimate rich young ruler who gave away everything, who gave away absolute wealth to come after you, to rescue you, to love you.